Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. My name is Zach Twomley and you're listening to When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks for stopping by as always. Remember, this is a listener-supported podcast and we are supported by the generosity and goodwill of people such as yourself. Just by listening right now, you are helping this podcast get out there so thanks very much for your support keep doing what you're doing because you're doing it great welcome to the latest episode and i really hope you enjoy this installment of the franco-dutch war the story's getting good folks it's getting exciting and perhaps we may even be very very nearly on the way to the point of the war breaking out i mean we only took about 10 episodes to get here but hey we are finally here when Diplomacy Fails does have a website, folks, wdfpodcast.com. Remember to go there if you want to support us or find out more about us or get our many products, including our book or the t-shirts, because, hey, if you're not going to read, if you're not going to listen, wearing doesn't take any effort at all, and by wearing, you'll be helping the podcast. So yeah, get a Bismarck t-shirt or a logo t-shirt right now, and do your bit for the History Friend community, which, as we all know, includes me. So thanks very much for that. That again, WDFpodcast.com. Finally, we are a member of the Agora Podcast Network, which, if you didn't know, is a group of podcasters, a lot like When Diplomacy Fails, though not nearly as handsome, who all take part in this crazy thing called podcasting. They release great products, they do it all for free, and they are dependent upon the goodwill and generosity of people like yourselves. If you would like to find out more, then this month... I, as well as the other Agora Podcast members, are promoting the Agora Podcast feed, which by its very nature is an interesting little medium containing a whole load of interviews between podcasters and helping you to get to know, well, who we are, really, as well as a whole load of discussion podcasts wherein we talk about a load of different things, ranging from is Westphalia overrated to the legitimacy of the state. A whole load of great stuff is on there, so check out the Agora Podcast Network. Okay, let's get into this. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, a series on the Franco-Dutch War. Last week, we looked at 1671 how both sides came to understand that the end was nigh and war would soon be upon them. To the Dutch it was a difficult truth to accept and one which, as we'll see in this episode, 
the majority of Dutch citizens still had not fully accepted, even as war crept ever closer. As we know, the war was a done deal thanks to the series of secret and not-so-secret treaties which Charles II and Louis XIV signed. Because of their joint negotiations, which were learned of through various channels with different rumours attached across Europe, France and England were bound to make war on the Dutch in spring 1672. By the end of this episode, if our mission is successful, impossible as it may seem, we should have brought you to those precious last moments of peace just before the declarations were made and the scales finally fell from everyone's eyes. It's been a long time coming, as you can see, and we're about halfway through the series by now, but that is because the war itself required such a high level of scene setting. It would have been nice to just jump right in, but for the ten episodes or so after this one, war will be our constant state of affairs, and you may even find yourself missing the peace, as Charles II was soon to do. Before we give the game away, let's get down to it. I will now take you to late 1671. No drummer roll can rouse our heart as William's glorious fame. Against England's dagger and fierce dart, we shelter in his name. A Dutch poet celebrates the appointment of William III to the position of Captain General. Late February, 1672. Johan de Witt, Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland, and for so long the administrator and facilitator of Dutch policy at home and abroad, was in the midst of a crisis. He had no illusions about the French, the dispute of tariffs had become increasingly bitter, and over the summer of 1671 the Dutch had increased their own tariffs on French brandy, in retaliation for French tariffs on Dutch textiles and dairy produce. The response had the air of hesitation about it, as that of a government which desired to fight back but didn't want to quite believe that fighting back should be necessary, and so held in reserve the worst economic penalties just in case. This just in case policy was becoming increasingly difficult to justify as 1671 wore on. Not only were DeWitt's agents in London and Paris sending back steadily worsening rumours as to the true nature of Stuart and Bourbon closeness, but the international situation was appearing lonelier and lonelier for The Hague, as sneaky diplomacy seemed to immobilise the normal course of Dutch ally-seeking. German mercenaries seemed to be shut off, save for the distant promises of the Elector of Brandenburg, while feeble Spain also promised an alliance in return for yet another subsidy. Bad as foreign affairs were, these were nothing in comparison to the situation at home. Ever since William III returned from London in February 1671, he had been imbued with a newfound sense of purpose and confidence. Perhaps it was his recent promotion as first noble, which his slippery Stuart uncle had been so approving of. Perhaps it was the fact that, now in the public eye more often, 
William's beginning to realise just how much the common man clamoured for their orange saviour. In their repeated urgings that William be reinstated as Captain General and thus be in charge of Dutch armed forces, the latest request put forward by the Orangists and William himself in late 1671, came the additional reluctance to consider the consequences. This is echoed by Peter Gale in his account of the two houses in the period, when he noted, More passionately than ever before, they, the commonality, clamoured for the Prince's appointment as Captain General, as the state's only salvation. Talk of English interference was discounted, and the opposition of the states of Holland was generally ascribed to their secret pro-French leanings. Nothing could have been more unfair. Johann de Witt was in the unfortunate position, as he had been for some time, of being forced to battle not just against his physical enemies, but also against unsubstantiated rumours. Try as he might, he could not shake the impression that the Regent Party, of which de Witt was a member, were mere pawns of the French, and that the Orangist Party were the only ones that could guarantee both peace with England on a national revival in arms and standing. As de Witt had repeatedly tried to make plain to his opponents, both now and during the previous war with the English, Charles II cared not one fig for what the Dutch did with their Orange Prince. He wasn't out to ensure his nephew's position, he was out to destroy the economic competition which the Dutch posed to England. That it served Dutch interests to ally with the French in response to this threat, De Witt never denied, and the fact that rumours of French duplicity and war plans were beginning to seep down into the commonality, while to wit it represented a disaster, to the common man it represented a vindication of the idea that the regents couldn't be trusted to guide Dutch policy, and that they had guided the Republic into a state of naked vulnerability because of their dealings with Paris. That De Witt should never have trusted the French, that he was to blame for the French animosity towards the Republic, and that he must take responsibility for such actions, were all claims put forward by the Orangist camp, and indeed a large portion of historians today and from the period. The claims of the Orangists were here, as before, based on lies, and Peter Gale's account of the worsening situation, as well as to its convictions and opposition to key tenets and principles of the Orangists, make for frustrating and illuminating reading. That the Dutch could find succour with England if the blasted De Witt would only appoint his nephew to the rightful position in the Republic was a frequently parroted phrase, aggravated of course by Charles II's agents, actively encouraging that very idea. The fact was though, by early December 1671, when it was proposed yet again that William would be appointed Captain General of Dutch Armed Forces, and that this would save the Republic from whatever came next, De Witt was running out of allies or reasons to oppose them with. He disagreed fundamentally, as he always had done, with the Orangist way of doing things, because he remembered the repressive and limiting nature of the Orange Stadtholder regime, led by William's father, William II. He remembered that it tied the Republic to England without good cause, that it left that Republic open to familial intrigue and backbiting as well. He remembered what a relief it had been to cast off the Orange yoke, and lead the Republic into the era of true freedom, without recourse to the House of Orange or their cursed limiting methods. To do it, the idea of a stadtholdership led by William III was little better than the monarchies of the continent's other princes. Far better it was to control Dutch policy rationally, without heed to family interests, and with a more strategic, realistic and perhaps even cynical view of Dutch options in the world. 
Cynical they may have been, but it couldn't be denied that with the leadership of the Republic's wealthiest families at the head, the Dutch had exploded in wealth, power and influence since 1650, notwithstanding two great wars with England and the worrying military situation in each. De Witt, it seemed, couldn't even win properly in the Orangist eyes. They blamed him for sticking it too much to England in the final stages of that war. The burning of English ships and the humiliation De Ruyter inflicted upon the English in their backyard had pushed the English into the arms of the French. Subsequent propaganda actions and the commissioning of paintings and medals depicting the event had not helped, and Orangists thus claimed that De Witt was endangering the Republic's security, a claim which, unfortunately, the Dutch people and most historians have taken as fact. Essentially backed into a domestic corner, De Witt would eventually be forced to give way on the issue of William's promotion to Captain General. De Witt couldn't help but feel that the Prince was gradually accumulating more and more power for himself, and thus undercutting that of the Regents. What was the basis which his opponents, increasing in number by the day it seemed, argued for William's appointment when they had once been satisfied with the first noble position and even the perpetual edict? Not only was the prince thus legally restricted in what he could achieve in the Republic, but he had technically been replaced by Field Marshal Wurz of Sweden, due to the regent's hope that by appointing such a distinguished military man to that old position, and basically replacing it, the Captain Generalship, with something of another name, a Field Marshal ship, everyone would be satisfied, but this was not the case. In the minds of many Dutchmen, it came from the mistaken impressions of the international situation, as well as a deep-seated desire to appease the commonality, in the hopes that doing so would make the Republic somehow more stable to face future dangers. As one citizen and ally of De Witt noted, it was now necessary to grant William the Captain Generalship, because it would serve to soothe England and Brandenburg, because the military leaned towards the Prince, because it is said that Field Marshal Wurz prefers to take the field under a Captain General, because the commonality are crying out for it, because the six provinces steadily insist on it, because the commissioned councillors of both the quarters are of the same opinion, and because the principal members of Holland have spoken in its favour. As we well know, the idea that England would be soothed by William's appointment as Captain General was not a new one. Do its own allies had even put it forward, in some cases since the early 1660s, But thanks to the gestures of support for the measure by the likes of the Duke of Buckingham and the Earl of Arlington in London, the idea gained greater traction in the Netherlands. In addition, there was a plan in late 1671 to send a conciliatory mission to London for spring 1672, in the hopes that whatever conflict was incoming might be avoided. And Dutch officials across the board voiced their opinion that William's appointment to the Captain Generalship would be a great building block upon which to rebuild the Anglo-Dutch relationship. It was, of course, wishful thinking, since the Dutch were irresolutely bound to have war with the Anglo-French in that spring, thanks to a series of treaties De Witt could scarcely have believed, though he would have been told so much about them. In the midst of this crisis, De Witt sent a series of letters to Peter de Groot, Dutch ambassador in Paris, which are as quotable as they are fascinating. The adherents of the Lord Prince of Orange, wrote De Witt on the 10th of September 1671, and also many good patriots whom the Lord God has not seen fit to endow with sufficient constancy and courage, 
openly argue that the state, if left to itself, cannot resist the power of France. And De Witt continued the following day that all there seemed to be left to do in the Dutch list of options was to fall victim to France, or else throw ourselves into the arms of England, which De Witt imagined would be the scene if William was appointed Captain General. I confess freely, continued De Witt, that I regard this cure to be worse than the ill. De Witt, thinking back to the previous events of the Republic under the House of Orange, couldn't believe that his peers would be so willing to lay the foundations of their own slavery through their supplication to the Prince of Orange. De Witt was thus convinced that conceding to William's appointment meant becoming a vassal state of London once William activated whatever sinister plans he had set in motion during his previous stay in London. As we know, there were no such plans. William hadn't really gelled with his uncle, so to speak, and had been somewhat shocked at the king's tone with regard to both Protestantism and the future of Anglo-Dutch relations. It should also be added that William was at this stage flying by the seat of his pants when it came to seeking promotions at home. Yet considering the picture unfolding before DeWitt, we can't blame the grand pensionary for thinking otherwise. In his desperation did Johann de Witt ask Peter de Groot to emphasise to his French hosts that the current French policy was actively reducing Dutch sovereignty and the Republic may be forced to bow to English demands in the future if such interference continued. By claiming such a drastic outcome was in the pipeline, de Witt no doubt hoped that Louis would snap out of his mood and rebuild Franco-Dutch relations to preempt his cousin taking over the Republic, but of course de Witt was wrong on this count as well. Louis counted on his cousin undermining Dutch unity and sovereignty, that was one of the pillars of their joint strategy. As it happened, de Groot eventually came to his own conclusion that the French wouldn't respond favourably to events, no matter what form they took, and this bleak picture in turn persuaded de Witt that resisting William's appointment as Captain General wouldn't do much good for his domestic woes. So, if it wouldn't improve the international situation either, Perhaps it was better to simply give in and ease William into his new role with a series of restrictions that all could agree on instead. DeWitt's change of tune seemed to come just in time. Within a month, the States of Holland had drafted their instruction and expressly declared that the Perpetual Edict, which banned William from taking the Stadtholdership, but not the Captain Generalship, had to be respected still. De Witt could accept this line of logic. Indeed, there was little he could do by this point to hold back the orange tide. So it was that on the 25th of February 1672, William III of the House of Orange was appointed Captain General for a military campaign, with the understanding that once he reached his 23rd birthday, he would be Captain General for life. Although the promotion certainly made him wince, De Witt no doubt believed that he had done his best and that now, hopefully, the Republic could exercise a degree of unity where preparing for the expected French danger was concerned. At the very least, the interests of William and De Witt to resist whatever Louis planned were, for the moment, intertwined. Across the border in France, a very different story was taking shape. Since at least spring 1670, Louis had been visiting his fortresses along the border with the Spanish Netherlands, ostensibly to oversee the conquests of the previous war, but realistically to prepare for the next one. On the 14th of May 1671 he visited Dunkirk and there conversed with the Marquis of St. Maurice, 
who was touring the region as part of a retinue appointed by the Duke of Savoy. Louis was his polite, courteous self, but he would have known that St. Maurice was there to gather intelligence for his duke about the preparedness of the French for war, as war clouds seemed to darken the continent. Indeed, St. Maurice gives us one of the best indications of Louis's growing preparedness for the conflict and his increased determination to spend money and invest so. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Soldiers in getting once impressive fortifications up to an impossible standard. Maurice wrote to his duke, They are making at Dunkirk some of the finest fortifications I have ever seen. 9,000 men are at work every day with the greatest order and diligence that has ever been put into practice. They are divided into three brigades. One begins work at five in the morning. It is relieved at nine by the second, which remains until two, and the third, which remains until nightfall. Thus, they work 15 hours without interruption, which would not be possible if they worked the whole day. The plan for defending France revolved around these fortresses, and would do for the next 40 years of Louis's reign, and beyond that as well. These were nuts which were made increasingly harder to crack by the defences in depth and the sheer level of investment that Louis poured into them. His adviser in such affairs remained Sebastien Leprestre, also known as Signor Vauban, the engineering ace who oversaw the building of French defences for over 40 years and whose role in ensuring that France was adequately prepared for the attacks of its enemies was profoundly significant. Vauban was one of those great men of France whom Louis was massively indebted to for the maintenance of his kingdom's position. The other men included Jean-Baptiste Colbert, the Minister of Finances, whose brother Charles served as ambassador in London. Colbert's rival for the king's attention was François-Michel Letellier, but you likely know him as the Marquis of Louvois. Louvois was Louis's Minister of War, and as such, he was a very important man in Louis's mind. At the same time, Colbert took upon himself as Minister for Finances the task of revitalising the French Navy, a task urgently required if it was to match up with its Dutch or English counterparts. 
Colbert could ensure that the money went to the right places, while Louvois regularly waged private battles with him and Louis for the funds to be diverted into the army. With these great men, the siege engineer, the economist and the minister for war, could also be added the greatly skilled commanders of Louis's reign, men who, like Vauban, have been largely forgotten but who would play a pivotal role in the defence and aggrandizement, of course, of France over the coming decades. When we talk about Louis being victorious in a given war, it is generally due to men such as Marshal Turenne, the Grand Condé or Marshal Luxembourg, that French forces prevailed. Louis was fortunate in that he regularly had great military minds to call upon, even though by 1672 Marshal Turenne was nearing the end of his life. Turenne had served under a who's who of famous commanders by the time he was needed by Louis for the Dutch War, everything from the Fronde to the closing phases of the Thirty Years' War, where he proved a critical foil against resurgent Bavarian threats, the Protestant Huguenot Turenne was, in many senses, a sponge, having learned a great deal from those he had served under over his long phase in command. His peer, the Prince of Condé, could boast a similar pedigree, as that man had a rich and not-so-savoury history as not only a Prince of the Blood, but also as a turncoat and soldier for hire in Spain. If you can remember back to the opening episodes of the Second Anglo-Dutch War, one of the greatest gripes Cardinal Mazarin had was allowing the treacherous Condé back into French military service without so much as a slap on the wrist. Having been since forgiven for his treachery, which had come about during the course of the Fronde in the early 1640s, Condé was eager to prove himself, and he would be given command over a great portion of the troops sent to invade the Dutch Republic. The Marshal Luxembourg was also responsible for many of the great triumphs of France, and would regularly frustrate the efforts of William of Orange during the Nine Years' War, or War of the League of Augsburg, that was to come. For now, though, Luxembourg worked hard to cultivate a relationship with Louvois, with the result that he quickly rose through the ranks of French command, accompanying Condé and eventually succeeding him once the latter died. While Louis's generals jostled for position, it seemed as though their Dutch foe wouldn't even have a field army to fight with, Indeed, the military cultures of the two states couldn't have been more different. Installing William of Orange as Captain General was likely meant to restore some faith in the capabilities of the Dutch army, but such restorations couldn't happen overnight. The need to improve their strategic position was coupled with Louis's blatant growing hostility. The Marquis of St. Maurice, writing home to the Duke of Savoy in December 1671, noted how Peter de Groot in Paris had passed on a letter from De Witt, likely a repeat of what he had sent before, urging Louis to not let England push the Dutch into a difficult position. It is this letter which St. Maurice summarised in the following terms, saying that they, the Dutch, had been assured that the great armament which His Majesty was making is in order to wage war upon them, and that they found this difficult to believe because they had never been lacking in respect nor done anything against his interests, that they had not wished to listen to the suggestions made that they should attack him, that they had carried out punctiliously all the latest treaties made with his crown, and thus, feeling their consciences to be clear, they could not imagine that he had anything against them, that if they had done him any disservice at all without knowing it, that they had failed him in any respect, if his majesty would have the goodness to let them know, 
they were ready to give him appropriate satisfaction. Louis's response to this letter told DeWitt all that he needed to know. On the 6th of January, 1672, Louis, after messing De Groot around for a fortnight, finally met with him and was so unpleasant, so bellicose, that De Groot would ask to leave for home almost immediately afterwards, believing the cause lost. Louis, in De Groot's words, was said to have replied, We increased the number of our troops in order to employ on the fortifications the infantry in garrison there, and to protect our subjects from the aggression which threatened them, owing to the extraordinary levies of infantry and cavalry that you raised, and the fleet you stationed off our coasts. By doing this, we have obeyed the laws of prudence, and provided the protection that we owe our people. We tell you that we will increase our armament by land and sea, and when we are in a position, which we plan to be in, we will make use of it as we consider appropriate to our dignity, of which we will render account to no man. Receiving this letter in mid-January as the kerfuffle continued over William's captain generalship, DeWitt would have known the game was up, as he suspected since the previous spring. The problem was, he knew that the disparity in power between the two sides was too great. The alarm which had prompted Peter de Groot to seek a full audience with Louis came mostly as a result of Louis's increasing interest in his border forts, which he continued to fill with large amounts of soldiers and build menacingly in preparation for... something? Not only that, but it was well known that the French army was rapidly increasing in size as well. John A. Lynn, in his history of Louis' wars, noted that during the War of Devolution, Louis' forces stood at 134,000. Afterwards, they returned to the peacetime levels of 70,000. Yet Louis had so built back up the army by 1672 that by January of that year, French armed forces totaled 120,000. And almost as soon as DeWitt received the depressing letter, he received another word from his agents that Louis had added a further 26,000 men. There could be no doubting it. Louis was planning on launching a war, and he almost certainly planned no other target than the soft underbelly of Europe, the Dutch Republic, who for years had reinforced its navy against English assaults, only now to be faced with a military challenge on land, which DeWitt knew deep down it wouldn't be ready for in time. But he had to try. In a last-ditch effort to make some use out of the appointment of William to the Captain Generalship, a Dutch mission was sent over to London to try and coax English favour. Two days into the mission, a Zealander charged with leading it wrote to DeWitt that From now on, there is nothing for it but to see for rigorous defences at home. DeWitt didn't wait to be told. He had been urging his peers since the previous summer to improve their defences and increase the levies used to defend them. Yet the Republic was paralysed until early March of 72 because of the Captain Generalship incident, which essentially involved all the provinces somewhat stonewalling Holland, and especially DeWitt's suggestions, until the Regent hardliners gave way and allowed William to ascend to the ancestral position. DeWitt was probably tearing his hair out by the time the question of raising more levies was brought before the States General in early March, but by then it was too late. Far too late. On the 6th of March, the English fleet had already set sail, in rapture at the promise of booty which would follow their first manoeuvre of the war, for they aimed to attack a returning Dutch treasure fleet from India when it sailed into their view within as soon a time frame as a fortnight. 
Peter Gale captured the difficult position the Dutch were in most perceptively, and this alludes back to a point I made in the previous episode about mercenaries. Gale wrote, What the Republic really needed was the help of professional soldiers, and these were chiefly found in Germany, where several rulers had entered into agreements with the French, and others had raised their price considerably. Even so, it proved possible to scratch together a few regiments, albeit their spirit and that of the Dutch soldiery, so long neglected, left much to be desired. DeWitt desperately needed allies if the war broke out. Failing that, the best he could expect Dutch forces to do was hold on to their positions and at least depend on their fortifications and the natural barrier provided by the rivers Meuse, Rhine and Esel to the very least delay the French advance. If necessary, DeWitt hoped he would be able to persuade his fellow regions to use desperate means and flood the lowlands by opening the sluices on the dikes, which were controlled at key Dutch towns along the waterline. Such drastic measures hadn't been undertaken since the dark days of a looming Spanish reconquest, and DeWitt alongside his allies appreciated that they would have an uphill battle convincing anyone, let alone the peasantry who manned and relied upon this land for their well-being, to go so far particularly when the war axe had yet to fall. It is perhaps one of history's greatest injustices that the general narrative presents DeWitt as failing the Republic or being lulled into a false sense of security by French sweet talk. The two problems that existed with this alternative picture were that DeWitt was no fool and neither were his contemporaries who accepted that something was coming, and critically there was no French or indeed English sweet talk. There was much wishful thinking among the Orangists, who upheld until the last moment, and in fact during the war itself when they continually tried to use William of Orange to gain a better peace treaty, that Charles would not attack the realm of his nephew, little appreciating that Charles's entire war strategy revolved around vassalising the Republic with his nephew as its puppet. Speaking of William, it is worth considering what he thought of the whole situation. He can't have been blind to the danger France posed either, though Louis had congratulated him on his promotions in the past, as had his uncle. William would have understood the dire strategic position that his homeland was in, but much like DeWitt, he was in early 1672 distracted by affairs closer to home, or rather closer to his heart. Desperate to ensure that the captain generalship, which he saw as his birthright, become his, William went to extraordinary lengths to try and bring it about. Convinced in January 1672 that DeWitt would never relent and agree to this appointment, William wrote a letter to his uncle in London, the contents of which had been since lost to history for a variety of reasons. Within it, William noted, Unless His Majesty be too closely bound to France, he may never find a better opportunity for obtaining from the States whatever he desires and should his majesty be willing to let me know his desires, I am confident that, as long as they are not directly hostile to the foundations of the Republic, I shall be able to obtain them for him, in spite of Mr. Grand Pensionary DeWitt and his cabal, who will thereby be worsted, while I and my friends, in whom his majesty can place his trust, he will, moreover, be able to count on this state for all time." I have no doubt that His Majesty will believe that, so long as I have an authority in this state, I shall be utterly devoted to His Majesty's interests, insofar as my honour and faith, which I owe to this country, can allow me, being well assured that His Majesty would not wish it otherwise. 
Such a controversial message, sent through resident anti-Dutch English visitor Sir George Downing, no less, was enough to get Peter Gale up in arms in his account of the period. Though that historian didn't quite call William a traitor for these words, he did underline that it looked pretty dodgy, and that if it came out, it would certainly come against him in the future, considering the stance Charles was to take. What strikes me, though, is how William's personality shone through. We'll see this in later examples of resistance he gives to foreign powers, even while he'll try to find avenues through private communication to bring about peace or an armistice in in ways we might find unsavoury. The fact that he prefaced his warm assertions to help Charles in his quest with a warning that he could do nothing which would undermine the foundations of the Republic suggests that William well understood even at this stage what his responsibilities were to his homeland. Though he was only half Dutch, and though it would have been very easy to accept Charles's generous offer to stand as puppet ruler of a rump Dutch state under the English thumb, as Charles well expected him to, William's aim is clearly focused on De Witt in this case, and that man's cabal, otherwise known as the Regent Party, which was in opposition to William and his allies, otherwise known as the Orangist Party. William could have handed his uncle a no-strings-attached offer. That he didn't, and that Charles rejected his offer precisely because the British king was planning on undermining the sovereignty of the Republic, reflects the fact that Charles, much like Louis, was by this point going for broke and had cast off all cloaks to the contrary. When William got Charles's terse refusal to his letter, a letter which seemed to promise Orangist aid for getting rid of the regent regime, and installing William at the head of a still, fully independent Dutch Republic, he could have little doubts as to what his uncle's intentions really were. That he was only a fortnight later to rise to the rank of Captain General was convenient for William because it satiated, at least for the moment, his ambitions at home. Yet it was also immensely fortunate for the future of the Dutch Republic because it ensured that William was tied that much more securely to the Dutch state, which he now had absolutely zero intentions of betraying to his uncle or that of the French king, even for the greatest prize of all, the stadtholdership. William was confident by this point that if he demonstrated capable ability and defiant courage in the face of what was to come, then the people would bring him this appointment, just as they had brought him the captain generalship. He wouldn't even have to ask for it. William, as it turned out, couldn't have been more right, But as the Dutch fleet returned from India laden with treasure, and as the English prepared dutifully to attack them on the 23rd of March, 1672, it was clear that this would be a different kind of crisis and a different kind of conflict to any that the Dutch Republic had faced in its comparatively short history as a state. As his ally moved at sea, Louis XIV moved on land. By the 6th of April, 1672, he had sent provisional declarations of his rationale for war with the Dutch Republic to most of the capitals of Europe, and on the 8th of April, he sent one to The Hague. Owing to illness, Peter de Groot had only left his post as ambassador to France a fortnight before the armies marched. French intransigence, the plain aggression of Louis' forces, and the open desires of the Sun King to threaten the independence of the Dutch Republic had all played their role in convincing the veteran Dutch diplomat that peace was a hopeless cause. In communicating with Conrad von Buningen in London, these two men and De Witt had done their level best over the last two years to maintain peace in Europe, often at the Republic's expense. 
that diplomacy ultimately failed is less a reflection on them, of course, and more due to the fact that Charles clamoured for revenge alongside his powerful cousin. This cousin was the most powerful ruler in the world, it seemed, and he had set his sights on a tiny republic in the corner of this sprawling continent. Charles may have sought revenge, perhaps prestige, but Louis imagined the prize he had always sought, glory. A great legacy and great acts which would provide the commentators on his reign, in fact the historians, with something to talk about, think about and marvel at. Next time we fulfil Louis's greatest wishes by examining the opening phases of what Louis believed was his greatest act as sovereign of France, but which historians have termed one of his greatest errors in judgement. By mid-April 1672, the Franco-Dutch War had finally begun. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.